0: This morning, we return to the near end of a civil war. The losses were great that day. 20,000 men fell. Countrymen against countrymen, families against families. And even a son set against his father. David's son, Absalom, had turned the entire kingdom against his father and worse still, against God's Messiah. Absalom, whose hair was his His glory that made his looks all the talk of Israel's Hollywood, the envy of the Greek gods, was the picture of success. He was on his way to glory as he rode out to battle. But now he lies in shame, buried beneath a pile of heaping stones. For Absalom's rebellion against his father and his treasonous insurrection against the king, Absalom got what he deserved, death. Indeed, the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm to Absalom, 2 Samuel 17, 14. David had even prayed for this in 2 Samuel 15. O oh Lord, please bring the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. According to Ahithophel's counsel, Absalom was never supposed to be on the battlefield. But the Lord heard David's prayer. And he brought the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. Absalom was on that battlefield, run through and now dead under a pile of stones because no plan and no counsel can ever succeed against the Lord. Absalom's looks, his hair, left him caught in the air, suspended from a tree, hanging between heaven and earth. What could his looks do for him now? What about his charisma and all of his cronies? Where were they? Caught in a tree. An awful picture that his whole life was caught in his sin. The things he relied on had turned on him. And it's a vivid picture of everyone who builds their life on an identity outside of Jesus. Caught in sin. No way out but death. And we all do it. I mean, we all double down like Absalom in some way. Later this morning, we're going to see how even David doubled down. Last week we saw how Absalom's successes went to his head and he lost it. This week we're going to see how David's sorrows went to his heart and he almost lost the kingdom. Our angers and our fears, our successes, are you ready? As well as our sorrows can reveal what we worship. For some, our identity, just a reminder, is built around work, how hard we work, how valued we are at work. If only I could be king, Absalom said. If only I could have that job or that client, we say. Or maybe a different thing. Maybe our identity is is having a well-organized schedule, perhaps symbolic of our desire for control, because deep down we're afraid of not being loved or being valued. Because the more we get done, the more valuable we feel, so we control it. Here it goes. I don't know what it is for you. But let Absalom's life work on yours. Because like Absalom, here's what sin is. Sin is building your identity on something outside of Jesus. And how would you know? Well, what swells your head if you get it? And what depresses your heart if you don't? Whatever that is, is the thing, whether you know it or not, is what you are a slave to and you worship it. And like Absalom, you're caught. Because every identity outside of Jesus will only help you up high enough to hang you. Caught in sin. That was Absalom. Caught in sin with no way out. Now friend, is it you? So there lies Absalom. His life now a monument to reckless pride and short-lived madness. A monument now to God's justice. Be sure your sin will find you out, Absalom. The payoff for sin is death. Pride always goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. For the Lord had ordained to bring harm upon Absalom. Second Samuel seventeen fourteen. There lies Absalom, a monument to God's justice, a warning to everyone caught in sin, a mirror to see our own sin. But now who's going to tell the king? Who's going to tell the king that his son is dead? That's where our story picks up now. So let's start back in 2 Samuel 18. 2 Samuel 18, we'll start back in verse 16. We're going to read eighteen sixteen to 23 for now, 2 Samuel 18. And I want you to look for a repeated word or an important phrase, because as we've seen on Wednesday nights, repetition is one way to spot a key emphasis in a text. So let's read 18, 16 to 23, looking for repeated words and the news. They're going to tell the king. This is what Holy Scripture says. Second Samuel, 18, 16. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel Joab restrained them and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. All Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it's called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed his head before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, Came again to Joab, come what may, let me run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for carrying this news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Amihaz ran by the way of the plain and he outran the Cushite. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in these verses, what word appears five times? It's the word news or carry the news. An epic foot race breaks out on who's going to get this news back to the king. Now, we recognize one of the runners right away. It's Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, who's the priest. And Ahimaaz had previously displayed courage in his athleticism in chapter 17 because he's the one who carries the message from Hushai to David that Absalom's about to come and declare war on him. And now Ahimas, who carried the first news of war, wants to be the runner who carries the news back that the war is done. But Joab, David's field general, realizes there's a problem. In the early chapters of 2 Samuel, whenever somebody brings news, what they think is good news to David, that messenger gets killed. 2 Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel 4. And, and Joab says, when you, Ahimas carry this news, David won't hear the king's enemy is dead. David will hear, end of verse 20, the king's son is dead. And he may likely execute you. And we can't afford to lose the priest's son after a costly day of battle. So Joab drafts an unnamed servant, a Cushite from Ethiopia, to take the news to the king. And off the anonymous servant goes. But Ahimaaz will have none of it. He won't take no for an answer. He begs Joab, come what may, whatever happens, let me run with the news. And then even with a head start, Ahimas catches the Cushite and he outruns him. But now, what's the focus? What's the news? What's the news that both runners are carrying? Look again at verse 19. Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Now, friends, that news gives us the theological interpretation of everything that you've just seen. That phrase, the Lord has delivered his king from the hand of his enemies, is going to recur three times in the chapter. It was part of our opening uh, silent meditation this morning. It's the overriding point, so don't miss it. Absalom's death is good news. Why? Well, his death means that God is just, that he judges sinners. Absalom is the Antichrist. He's lifted his hand against the Lord and against his Messiah. God's promises were on the line. His faithfulness has been on the line. But now Absalom's death means that God's purposes to bring harm to Absalom, 2 Samuel 17, and his promise to preserve the line of David for the salvation of the world, 2 Samuel 7, have come to pass. This is good news. The Lord has delivered his king from the hand of his enemies. Praise to our great God that nothing can stop him from executing his promises of grace. And praise him that nothing can stop him from executing those who stand in the way of giving his promises of grace. So let God be praised, the news is. Let sinners be warned, for the Lord has delivered his king from the hand of his enemies. And how did God defeat his enemies? Well, remember, he did it all through a tree. For the forest devoured more that day than the sword. This is good news. It's supernatural news. No wonder Ahimaaz wants to run back with the news. Everybody sees this as not only news, but it's good news. God had delivered his king. But now there's the tension in the story. Because how will the king hear this news that's good news? And beloved, can you think of any other time, a final time, that God defeated his enemies and provided salvation of the world through a tree? This is supernatural news. Well, let's finish reading chapter 18, and I want you to watch two main things I want you to watch David as the news, as the tension builds. And then as it's given, I want us to watch his response. So verses 25 to 32. This is what Scripture says. Now David was sitting between the gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and he comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the earth. And he said, blessed be the Lord, your God, who's delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, thank you. No, he said, is it well with the young man, Absalom? Ahimaaz answered when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And Behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man, Absalom? And the Cushite answered, oh, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. This is the word of the lord you can see david's anxiousness rise as he watches a lone runner and then another come across the horizon and then they recognize the stride of ahima's and david says well he's coming not only with news but verse 27 ahima's is bringing good news he arrives out of breath gleeful perhaps that he just crushed the cushite and left him in the dust But most of all, he's eager to deliver news to the king. When Ahimaaz gets close enough, he first gives the greeting. All is well. Then he gets closer and he falls to the ground, bowing over on both knees with his arms outstretched before the king, and he delivers the news. And for a second time in the account, here comes the theological center of the story. The grand conclusion of events that began all the way back at the end of 2 Samuel 14. Here's the news again, verse 28. Blessed be the Lord your God who's delivered up the men and raised their, who raised their hand up against my Lord, the King. Now, there's an old country expression. If that doesn't, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. That's what should have happened. It's the second time. But David is not thinking like God's king. He's thinking. As a dad. He's not thinking of national security for the nation of whom he's responsible. So the king says, yes, yes, yes. But is it well with Absalom? And now we're experiencing this report through David. We're hearing it with David for the first time. Nothing is definitive at this point. Well, a few moments later, the Cushite arrives and as readers, we want to know still how the king will react. We have to wait with David. Yes, now, just get to the news. Then for the third time in the account, a report comes of news. And this time it is the Cushite. And look again at verse 31. What does he say? Good news for my Lord, the king. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Notice how all encompassing God's defeat of his enemies is delivered you from the hand of all who rose up against you. That's a resounding victory. The atomic bomb of God's judgment has fallen and all those who revolted have been wiped out. And don't forget to set the victory relayed three times as news, good news, into the wider literary context of the Bible and its redemptive storyline. Because context, remember, like the prongs of a diamond ring, hold up the beauty of the text and make it shine with significance. Well, what's significant then the context will help? Well, this is a spectacular moment in redemptive history because God's king and his kingdom are safe again. Think of it this way. Go back to the beginning of the Bible. The serpent has just struck at the heel of God's seed, but the seed of the woman has crushed out resistance. The reports of defeat and deliverance in this chapter mean this, that promise, that promise that an obedient son and king given to Adam and Eve in Genesis three fifteen relayed to Abraham in Genesis twelve, embodied by Israel, God's son in the Exodus, narrowed back down to David, the king and one dynastic line in second Samuel seven. Yes, those promises that were on the line have all been kept. Genesis 3.15, it's still alive, and so is David. God's promises are alive. The king is alive. His promise, then, to save the world through a king who's David's son and yet David's lord, that promise is still in play. Absalom's monument, then, is a monument to the day, indeed, that God defeated his enemies. And then three times, we're told, he delivered his king. The rulers of the earth had taken counsel together against the Lord and his anointed king. But in 2 Samuel, this chapter, God says, But I've set my king on my holy hill, and he still stands, Psalm 2. Game, set, match. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what's just happened. But the victory parade comes to a halt. The action screeches to a sudden stop, almost sending us as readers through the windshield of the story. It's so hard and fast. The realization of the news falls on David for the first time. And after all this running and after all this waiting, we finally get a response from the king. We all want to know what says the king. It's like the emperor in the film Gladiator. Well, his thumb, is it going to go up or down? That's the tense moment. What's going to happen? Look at the last verse of chapter 18. And into 19 for the king's reply. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he, as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping. And mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city. They came back into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son. My son, this is the word of the Lord. There are many low points in the Bible, and this is surely one of the lowest. It's an awkward, uncomfortable moment. Watching somebody grieve is always uncomfortable and awkward. Especially when you're watching the king cry like this. After a victory, we feel like the people in chapter 19, verse 3, who were ashamed at what they're watching. This is not the first time we've seen David mourn. He mourned over his best friend Jonathan, and then over Saul the king. He mourned over the death of his infant son he had with Bathsheba, and even to a degree over Amnon. But the grief here is different, it's deeper here David's grief knows no bounds. Robert Alter is a a Hebrew narrative scholar, and he notes that elsewhere, David responds to the report of death with eloquent elegies, but here he simply sobs. And this is not the feigned madness of a Hamlet, but the mad madness of grief. He stammers, uncontrollably, like he's lost his mind from the grief, repeating, my son, eight times in two verses. And then with a loud voice that echoed off the stone walls of the fortress, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What do we make of the king's breakdown? The narrator, like with Absalom, begs us to stop how do you know? With Absalom, he says, behold, Absalom hanging in a tree. And in nineteen one, he says, you better stop. Behold, the king is weeping. He's telling us to stop and look at him. So with divine permission and insistence, let's stop for a moment. Let's stop for lots of moments and behold the king weeping. Why is he weeping like this in chapter 18? Well, can I suggest three things that at least I think are hinted at By the immediate and then broader context. First, David grieves here not as a king, but as a father. I don't know if you picked up on this, but the name David is almost entirely lacking from these chapters. He's referred to again and again as the king, the king, the king, the king, the king, the king. king. His name, David, is conspicuously absent. This is the king, God's king. One big exception. There are others. Verse 24, we're told that David is sitting at the gate. And what's he waiting for? Not news about the battle. He's waiting for news about his son. Is it well with Absalom? And then as the chapter ends, David weeps. My son, my son, eight times. Here's the small point. David's not weeping as a king, but as a father who lost his son. So at one level we say, let him weep. Let David weep. He lost his son. And David's heart is breaking as a father. He's weeping as his dad for his son, evil though he may have been. Let him weep. He just lost his son. Now here's a quick aside. That's not the main lesson in the story, but it's one. Young adults and kids, when I say this. Be careful of breaking your dad's heart. Your dad loves you. And he always will. But you will run a sword through your dad's soul if you rebel like Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom. And are we not told? Don't you hear? Hence, here's David. Yes, weeping over a wicked man. Don't you hear in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven? The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of who? The wicked. Oh, my son, Absalom. Sorrow is always appropriate at any person's death especially your son. Second, it, it, it's possible. David's not only sorrowing for his son's death, but he's sorrowing for his own sin that's contributed to his son's death. Here's what I mean. I'm not tying it to psychology, but the wider context. We, we read together Second Samuel 12. And 13, Nathan the prophet told David that the result of your sins, of your murder, you would face consequence. And here was one, the sword will never depart from your family. And now, as a consequence for his sin, unleashed with Bathsheba and Uriah, David just lost another son. He lost a third son. And in 2 Kings 1, he'll lose a fourth son. God is not mocked, David. What you sow, you will reap. Thus, in 2 Samuel 13 to 19, David, before your eyes, we're watching watching the seed of David's sin bear fruit in his life. And as he weeps, he's eating the rotten fruit from his own sin. Yes, David is fully forgiven. And yet, Nathan said consequences would remain. When he sinned, it was like dropping a big boulder into a pond with circles widening out from it, forming a wake, rocking everything around it. Absalom is morally responsible in these chapters. Absolutely. And God also told David that your sins will affect your family. The sword won't depart from your house. Your sons will die. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And oh, Absalom, I think my sin, my sin that led to this. Now, listen. Listen. If David's grief as a father gives a a permission to grieve in any loss, if David's grief as a father warns you about breaking your dad's heart, then David's likely grieving over the consequences of his sin warns everyone not to sin, especially dads. David's sins as a father set in motion consequences he couldn't stop Remember like those circles widening from a stone dropped in the water, let in other words, in other words, look at the king weeping. Let David's weeping over the consequences of sin in his family keep us all from sin, especially the husbands and dads in our congregation. That's what happened here. Look a little longer at his weeping. The narrator says, "Behold the king weeping, behold him mourning." I want you to mark the awful contrast from 2nd Samuel 11. From the, from the adultery and the murder, I want you to mark that contrast from then to now because the pop songs that are there and the Netflix movies never show this awful arc. They show the allure of it. You ready to watch it? How David's heart pounded with lust when he sends a text message to inquire about Bathsheba. Oh, how fun it was to be flattered with his position. It was fun to take a man's wife and get in bed with her because it's true stolen water is sweet. I know how worldly wise, how shrewd David was to cover up the murder. It was a thrill. It was a challenge. It was a pleasure. That's what it was like in the moment. But now, but now what a fool. Behold the king weeping. Behold him weeping. Don't look away too fast. David learned the hard way that the wages of sin is death, that lust, when it's conceived, it always gives birth to a stillborn, to death. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my sin that's led to this. Don't look away too fast. The king is weeping. Be warned about your sin, that sin is nothing to be played with, that you can choose your sin, but God will choose your consequences. Behold, the king weeps. Likely imparted all the consequences of his sin now that came to bear in his son's life. Oh, and be careful. Be careful that when, when you sin in ways David did and then you are tempted to get frustrated or impatient with godly but imperfect elders or with your brothers and sisters in a church for trying to step in imperfectly and help clean up a mess that you made for trying to hold a marriage together, hemorrhaging from the shrapnel of the bomb of sin and foolishness that you yourself detonated, don't you dare blame anyone but yourself. Don't you grow weary under the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12. You better stand down and get yourself squared away and repent and humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. For the Lord loves those whom he disciplines and let it take as long as it needs to take. Behold, the king weeping, turn from sin, lest the consequences overtake you like it did David and those he loved. O Absalom, my son, he grieves as a father. His grieving, I think, for the consequences of his sin. But third, third, I'm careful here. And maybe deepest of all, these are related. Oh, Absalom, my son, I've just lost you to your sin, apparently, forever. Deep in his heart somewhere, David, he knows. He knows that his son is a rebel, that he deserved death, that he's an enemy of the state. You know how David knows that? Because when they go out to the battle, he said, please deal gently with him. He knows what he deserves. But now Absalom, Absalom, who had been shown so much grace and mercy in his life, was now gone, dead in sin, and in likelihood, we don't know, but likelihood gone in sin to be punished, likely forever. And we dare not think that God had not been merciful to Absalom. Absalom knew the truth about God, but he chose his sin instead. The tragedy is not that Absalom died, but that Absalom had rejected God, even though he knew Him. God's merciful. But now David, who apparently, who apparently, Second Samuel thirteen, when we read that passage in Second Kings one, apparently from the record, he seems to have been a passive parent with his dad. It says he didn't correct Amnon because he loved him, and you go, what? You didn't. That's not how it works. You correct people. He didn't correct him because he loved him? No. And then in 2 Kings 1, it says he never displeased his sons at any time. So if that's how he acted with Absalom, he appears to have been, appears to have been a passive parent. In the name, 2 Samuel 13 says, in the name of kindness of grace, who appears to have rarely or never corrected his boys, and now he'll never see Absalom again. Oh, Absalom, my son, I've lost you to your sin. And if that's true, then learn this from David's weeping. In other words, that he's passive and didn't correct, at least in general with his boys, then we must engage our children now. We must warn them of hell and urge them to run to Jesus. We must live holy lives at home and at work so that our life, like David's, does not contradict the confession of faith we say we believe. And when is the last time you shared the good news with your children? I don't care if they can't talk yet. Tell them now. Practice on them now. So when they do understand, you're ready to tell them. And you don't know what they're getting anyway. And as they get older, go on a date with them. And go to the park and throw the ball and check what's on their phone and be in their business and dig into their heart. Because parent is not just a noun, it's a verb. And you bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't be like David in his parenting. He apparently avoided his boys and rarely ever corrected them. Withhold not correction, Proverbs 23:13. David did not correct Amnon or Absalom or Adonijah because he must have thought he was wiser than God. Because he loved his sons, he never corrected them. Are you wiser than God, David? Perhaps, we'll see in a moment, he needed to be loved by his sons. In other words, Absalom's idol was his hair. Apparently, one of David's idols was his children, his sons. He loved them too much to correct them because, in some sense, we're going to see, he worshiped them. Please be discerning, beloved. Just be discerning. How about this? Add a cautionary note. Be careful of books and podcasts that may subtly be reflect aspects of the culture. Then they are a thoughtful reflection of all the Bible says about child rearing, training and correction. Be careful of talk of God's grace and parenting in such a way that withholds correction or even excuses sin in the name of grace. Jude 3 warns with that very phrase, they've turned the grace of God into disobedience. Proclaim the good news. Urge them to repent. Live in such a way that you show them Jesus and his word are everything to you so that one day, one day, one day, maybe they will embrace who you live for, Jesus, even if they don't embrace what you say to them. I know it's not easy. I don't mean to suggest it is. And listen, oh my goodness, it's not always the parent's fault. God was the perfect parent and he raised Israel as his son and they rebelled. It's not always the parent's fault. They they grow old, they move out of the house. What you do then, you pray. Certain things only come about by prayer and fasting. Stay engaged as much as you can. Ask them at times about the good news they've heard. Maybe you need to start saying to an Absalom-like adult son or daughter who's now grown, please forgive dad. Apparently, David never did. I think he weeps as a dad because his boy is gone. I think he weeps for the consequences of sin in his boy's life. I think he weeps that his son is now gone to sin. His own sin contributed to this, and his own parenting contributed to this, and now he's a hot, weeping mess. But the story's not done. Hold on for just a bit more. This text is not done coming at us. On the one hand, we say, we get why David is weeping. He's human and he lost his son. So weep on, David. But now, but now, why is he still weeping in chapter 19? I mean, God just won a great victory. And David, the king, has just been rescued. So why is David only weeping? Isn't isn't joy appropriate for a moment like this? After all, you're the king, the king, the king, the king, the king. But after watching David in chapter 18, and then we keep watching in chapter 19, we still feel like the people in verse 3 of chapter 19 ashamed. But now here's the question the story is going to ask you and me. God had just won a great victory. Should David still be weeping? Should we feel ashamed that we rejoice at what's happened? Stories work on us in ways we don't expect. Will you let the story work on you and ask us uncomfortable questions? Here's what we're about to see. Here's what I think we're about to see. I set it up this way in the introduction that Absalom's successes went to his head, but now you're seeing this, that, that David's sorrow goes to his heart, that our successes and our sorrows show us our idols. Anger can show you what you worship, but so can your weeping and your grieving. On the front of your order of worship, uh, Matthew Henry puts it like this. We are apt to over grieve what we overlove. Now, he didn't say it's wrong to grieve and it's wrong to love. Be a careful hearer. Matthew Henry says on this text, we are apt to over grieve what we over love. So here's where we're about to see. It appears at some level that David's grief shows that Absalom was his idol. Absalom was a source of identity for the king. It's one thing to weep, but to overweep? David, it seems, loved the love of his son more than he loved the love of God. He needed his son's love more than God's love, which may be why he rarely corrected him. Let's look at Joab's reply because Joab's reply puts David's continued weeping or his overweeping in perspective. And here's the point. Not only does David's grief show us what he worshipped more than God, his grief shows us not all grief is godly grief. Grieving people are not the unquestioned final authority on their grief. Our griefs can reveal our sin. Now, this is going to sting. It stung me, but let the word work. How do we know that's what's happening? Listen to Joab's reply in verse 5 of chapter 19. Then Joab came to the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. And today I know that if Absalom were still alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took a seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is God's word. I think this is showing you, especially David's response, that Joab's direct confrontation of David is right on. And just because his confrontation is harsh doesn't mean it's wrong. Joab warns David, listen, bro, if you don't snap out of your grief, a worse evil is going to come upon you. You know what all of our grief does? Our grief tends to make us feel unique, like nobody can understand. And if we're not careful, grief can make us selfish." Self absorbed and unaware about the world around us. You see, David, think of this. He's not the only, he's not the only dad who lost a son that day. 20,000 men died. And David's not the only one who lost somebody. He's also the king. He needs to be out there thinking of someone besides himself offering comfort to the wives and mothers who lost their husbands and son trying to save David's skin. I mean, everybody who died that day died because your son did all this and you're only weeping. Snap out of it, King. Now, before anything else, too, we go on. Remember this. Are you ready? Our grief can show us what we're really basing our identity on. In other words, Absalom said, if I can only be king, David said, if I only had Absalom as my son. Absalom's love, not God's in some way, was David's ring. It was his precious. That's why he tells them, deal gently with Absalom. What did he just tell you? Don't touch my idol. Now, have you learned? Could it be? Could it be could it be that God sends grief, deep grief into our lives, sometimes in part to show us what we're really living for? Could God ever send grief into our lives like that? Because our griefs can show us what we worship. Are you brave enough to look? Are you humble enough to admit that may be happening, that it could happen? That's the first thing Joab confronts the king with in verse five. You have responsibilities. You know, you are the king. And the people who lost loved ones saving you and your loved ones, and yet you're just thinking of yourself. David, you are not the sole authority of your grief at this moment. Now, not all, not all, not all. But some approaches, I think, to trauma therapy might have an issue with Joab's direct approach here. Be careful of triggering a traumatized person. Fine. But this account shows you this. Be careful of enabling a traumatized person to weaponize their trauma against other people. A whole nation is on pins and needles because you're shut up in here grieving. Your over love for your son, your over love is now harming this kingdom. Joab continues, I know he was your son. He was also an enemy of God and his promises. And you are in danger of loving those who hate you and and hating those who love you. In our age, with so much swirling about us in the United States, sometimes we seem to be more sympathetic for those who blatantly disregard law than we are sympathetic that God's law has been broken. Not all grief is godly grief. Be careful in our posts and our lamenting that we're not more sympathetic to sin than we are to God. Snap out of it, David. You're loving those things that are contrary to God and His purposes. Third, Joab circles around in verse 6 and says, you're not only ignoring the men and the families who died, you're ignoring the commanders who led into the battle. Don't you remember? You wanted to go out And we said, we'll risk our lives for you. If one of us dies, it's not a big deal. We put our lives on the line as a commander and told you to stay back. You're not the only one hurting. And you're wounding people And how you're grieving. And idolizing David and idolizing his son, it's not only hurting him, it's hurting everybody around him. And on top of that, he finally says, you know, you're giving the clear impression that if Absalom were alive and we were all dead, you'd be throwing the biggest party we've ever seen. You see, the chapter begins. Joab gets everything right. I think. Even if you want to say he shouldn't have been so, so direct. But then, but then David's ongoing grief is not godly. And dare we say, even sinful at points. Joab just exposed David's idol. The chapter begins, behold, the king weeping at the gate. How does it end? I mean, verse 8, behold, the king sitting at the gate. You know what that means? At some level, David knows Joab is correct. Behold, David's at the gate. Now, now think of how this works on us. Joab's confrontation, I think, comes at us directly in our feelings first culture. Joab's bold confrontation of David in his grief warns us that our grief can reveal an idol and that all grief is good or godly. Be careful of manipulating people, holding people hostage with your grief. David did that. Be careful of thinking you have an unquestioned right to grieve in the way you want and that you are the sole authority of your grief. Joab called out David for thinking like that. We all need a Joab. Here's an illustration. If my car breaks down, I've had the car now for about 20 years. I can tell you how it happened. I can tell you where it happened. I can tell you the funny noises it make. I'm an expert on my car. But I'm not an expert on how to fix my car. Now, could it it be in the same way that just because I know all about my sorrows doesn't mean I know all about the best way to deal with my sorrows in a biblical way. David needed Joab, even if he was curt and rude and brash. We are not the unquestioned authority on our grief and hurts. We need the body. We need people. Be careful of becoming self-righteous in our grief. We might be. We might. I said might. We might be embracing a category of victim and hurt more than you embrace the category I'm a child of the king. Now listen, victimhood culture is real. It's alluring. It's the fastest way to make yourself immune from any fault or criticism and absolve yourself of any responsibility, even how you're currently responding. And on top of that, you'll get the affirmation you so desperately crave because we're all made to be loved. But Joab called David out. It's okay for us to challenge one another at times in grief. Listen, the account of Job is in the Bible to warn us and help us bear with one another. Sometimes just shut your mouth and bear with them. That's in the Bible. It's there. We need to hear it. Weep with those who weep. But the account of Job is not the only passage in the Bible that warns us how we respond to grief. Therefore, Joab's confrontation gives us a harmonizing note to Joab. Joab's confrontation of David in his grief reminds us that sometimes grieving people need confronting as much as they need comforting. And just because they're hurt doesn't make them right. Just because they're hurt doesn't mean they're always right. They might, like David, be clinging to a false idol and a false hope, and you need to help them see it. All we can do is listen Job tells us sometimes that's true, but Joab says they ain't always true. Let the full Bible shape the full range of our legitimate responses to grief and those in grief because sometimes grief shows you what you're worshiping. Here's an example. I think, I think many of us know, or some of us, know that Tim Keller passed away a few weeks ago. If you don't know, he was a Presbyterian minister in New York City. His son now has been pastoring one of the churches that Redeemer planted Just shortly after his dad's passing, his son was preaching in in the church, still processing his dad's grief, and and he said the following. My dad died a couple weeks ago. There have been some beautiful tributes online. I catch myself scrolling, and I see tribute after tribute and some beautiful things. But we live in the Internet age, which means just look far enough, and you will see the criticisms. You will see the people that are not happy. What I've noticed is that there's a new pattern that's forming both online and in person. And here's how the criticism goes. I feel hurt, therefore you hurt me. That's really the argument. I feel hurt by Tim Keller's theology. I feel hurt by Tim Keller's actions. I feel hurt by his words, and therefore I am hurt. The problem with that is just because you feel that doesn't mean that it's true. I believe abuse is real, his son says. But just because somebody says something is abusive doesn't make it abusive. Just because somebody says you wronged me doesn't mean you were wronged by them. That's what the Israelites were doing in the text he was preaching. And it's the kind of thing Joab is confronting David of in this text. So be honest enough, be humble enough, let Joab's confrontation work on us. At least force us, maybe everything else. I've been direct this morning because I've tried to embody Joab's directness. When you preach, you not only have to embody what the text says, but you're trying to do it in the tone that it says. This is supposed to feel like I wish I had steel-toed boots on when I read this text. Here's some questions. How about this? How about I back up? Maybe maybe, Maybe this narrative is coming at us like this. Is my grieving exposing something I'm building my identity on other than Jesus and his love? Could that be possible? Number two. Is my my grief and my responses, are my grief and responses godly? Because not all grief is godly. Number three, are you letting your grief keep you from God-given responsibilities and biblical commands? Don't let personal sorrow keep you from God-given responsibilities and obeying commands. And you know what David's problem was? Now we're circling back. It was a worship problem. Absalom idolized the kingship. I have to be king. David idolized his son. Oh, my son, my son, my son, my son. He needed his son so much, he never confronted them. And Matthew Sanders said, you know what's happening? Here's what's happening. You know why David's over grieving? Because he overloved his son. Sorrows can reveal what we worship. Now, have you let sorrow do that work in your life? We're prone to overgrieve what we overlove. Whatever you idolize, like Absalom... Now, now, whatever you idolize like Absalom, it will one day turn on you or it will die on you. If I can have that house, if I can be married to that person, if I can have a child, if I get that job, but those idols can take you down to grief, but they'll never lift you up from it. That's how it works. Don't you know someone says... That when you build your life, when you build your life on a marriage or a perfect family, the Bible comes against that and it warns you that's what the story's doing that if you build your hopes on a spouse or a child at the very best, at the very best, if that's where you set your hope, you will be emotionally dependent at the best and at the worst, you'll be controlling and judgmental of your spouse or your child if anything goes wrong with that spouse, and you'll go to pieces like David. And then you'll be a help to nobody, but only a drain, like David. Do you see? What you over grieve will show you what you over love, and our idols can take us down to grief, but never lift you up from it. And if you now did, and if you idolize your children like David apparently did, someone says, You will you will either live your lives through your children so they will hate you and have no identity of your own, or you'll be so dependent on them that you'll rarely correct them. Or you'll bear down on them so hard because they have to look good for you or you don't have a life. David's grief is showing him his idol. What do your grief show you? Now, thankfully, in the end, Joab, uh, David obeys. Behold, the king weeping becomes behold, the king at the gate. The king has returned. God's king has returned, ruling and reigning. That's the rest of chapter 19 is about. And I wanted to get to that, but I didn't because I want to get to the return of the king. The king is back. And it's not too much to suggest that in this moment, Joab's... It's not too much to suggest, writes one commentator, that Joab's clear-headed toughness saved the throne for David. The king's public appearance, arranged by Joab, restores order and confidence. The people are assured the king has returned. Bring him back. Now... What do we make of this at the end? The problem is not that David grieved. Jesus grieved. He was even angry at Lazarus' tomb. Grief can be godly. Even grief over, over a wicked person. But we should learn to be angry and not sin and show we should learn to grieve and not sin either. Meat goes bad unless you rub salt into it. And Alton Brown understands this, and I don't. Maybe you do. But somehow a bag of cookies goes hard unless you throw a piece of bread into the bag. And somehow you throw a piece of bread into this bag and it keeps the cookies from getting hard and stale. I don't know how it works, but it works. Well, unless you rub something in your grief to keep it going bad, unless you throw something into the bag of your grief, your hearts will become hard and brittle and they'll break and crumble. That's what Paul says. We need to learn to weep, but not as those who have no hope. You know what the hope of this passage is? It's good news. Several times the phrase appears, good news. And what's the good news? That God delivered his people and defeated his enemies, not in spite of the king, but through his king. That's where the story goes. God delivered his king and defeats his enemies, not in spite of the king, but because of the king. At the end of chapter 18... David shows us the heart of our Savior while he shows us his own heart as a sinner. And again, it's on the front of your order worship. And after Henry is going after David, he says, but wait a minute, but wait a minute, but wait a minute, don't you see in David, don't you perceive a shadow of the Savior's love who wept over and prayed for and suffered death for mankind, even for vile rebels and enemies? Do you see in David's sinful life, we get a glimpse of the perfect Savior, that one day God will again deliver His people through a son, through a tree. This time, David's son Absalom won't be hanging from the tree, but another son of David will be hanging from the tree. David wept, and he said, Oh, that I could die in your place. At the cross, Jesus, the son of David, did die in the place of people like Absalom and people like me. And Jesus not only wept at Jerusalem, He never wept on those who didn't repent. He went one step further, and He died for them. And Jesus... Jesus not only died in the place of sinners like Absalom, Jesus died in the place of sinners and fathers like David. What David wanted to do, die in his son's place, Jesus did, even for David. God disciplined David severely, but the consequences of his sin were not the last word. God's grace was the last word in David's life. The best of us are still David. We're still sinners. David's hope shouldn't have been on his son, but on Jesus, God's final son, on God's Messiah. We're all sinners like David, or rebels like Absalom. And David's love and grief for Absalom, David's love condoned his son's sin. But Jesus' love doesn't condone sin, he dies for sin. What sinful fathers and kings need, what sinful sons like Absalom need, God gave. He gave his only son. That at you this morning. Whoever believes in him would never perish. God gave his only son, the king, the son of David, to save Absalom's and to save David's. Because bearing shame and scoffing rue in my place, condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Jesus, the king, died for us. Now, if that's so, that means sin is not the last word. So you can grieve and hope and you can get up and do what's next. And if he loves you this much, you may have lost something dear to you, but you've not lost his love. He gave up his son to make you his. And don't you see how much he's valued you? He died in your place to make a wretch his treasure so you can grieve now with no hope. God defeats his enemies and delivers his people through Jesus, the king who died for us. He made the exchange. I remember reading, now you you know where this is going probably, but I remember reading uh, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens in the eighth grade. I don't remember the characters, but you know what happens at the end? The the character sneaks in and he's going to take the place of of this man. And he said, I'm going to let you go free because that lady dumped me, but I still love her and I'm going to take your place and I'll go to the execution and you're going to go free. And the next morning they're walking to the gallows and there's a seamstress is walking to the gallows and she realizes it's not the guy who's supposed to be there. And she says, but would you hold me closer? Would you hold my tan tight? I can't believe somebody would die in the place of somebody else. Now listen, if that was fictional and it comforted somebody in a story, how much comfort should it give you to know that Jesus, the son of David, really did die in your place? He really did. This is the king who died for us in our place.